This episode is brought to you by the Worth Your Time podcast, where your host, that's me, Erica Anderson, brings you unique and interesting conversations with Christian women working in the intersection of faith, politics, and culture. See you there. Hey, a big shout out to Katie Poindexter and Richard Davis for recently becoming Patreon members. If you're interested in becoming a Patreon, follow the link in the description below. It's a great way to support the show and enable us to do what we do. All patrons, regardless of what amount you're given, in addition to other benefits, will get a custom bookmark signed by Troy and I. Follow the Patreon link in the description to find out more. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. Unrequited love is bad enough, but wounded self-love is the cruelest thing in human life because it shifts the whole foundation of the life. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Today's episode was preached by Oswald Chambers, and it's called Arriving at Myself. It was preached in Egypt around 1916 or 1917. Joel, why don't we change it up and have you start this episode, since uh, unlike me, you've been there, and you can tell us all what that was like. Yeah, I I have been there. Uh, So for those of you who don't know, when I'm not making podcasts with Troy, my wife and I work as missionary videographers. We travel around the world and make video content for different ministries and different missionaries around the world. And we were filming a project that was taking us all throughout Africa and the Middle East. And we were in Cairo in Egypt. And then during some of the free time, some of the guides took us to this cemetery and they took us to the graveside of Oswald Chambers. And I'm going to be honest, I... I did not know a whole lot about Oswald Chambers, and it was kind of interesting in that I didn't know a whole lot about him. I mean, I knew he was a British theologian. I know he had a lot of sermons and and works attributed to him, but I wasn't quite sure how he ended up being buried in a cemetery in Cairo, and that kind of sparked my interest. And so uh, this is kind of a lot of what Revive Thoughts is about, you know, looking at the inn and working our way back throughout their lives and what was their life like and how did they get to that point. I took a photo of the headstone while I was there. I'll put it on our Facebook page for anyone that wants to see what his headstone looks like in the modern day. Yeah, this was an episode we wanted to do uh, from the very start of Revive Thoughts. Oswald Chambers, he's this famous preacher and I love stories like his, uh, I want to say probably the most, uh, men who weren't just behind a pulpit, but they were out doing something. And I know some people are called to be behind the pulpit and they're, you know, tending to the church and that's awesome. But there's just something special about these guys who go to foreign countries as missionaries or they're following soldiers on the front lines, you know, like D.L. Moody was during the Civil War or, you know, Machen was doing during the same World War One, um, or they're tending to the sick like Johann Tauler was during the Black Plague. Yeah, I just love these stories of these hands-on preachers uh, getting getting out there and putting themselves in the front lines. I, one thing I learned about Revived Thoughts is just how many of these preachers were in war zones. You know, they they don't stay home and tend to the tend to the people back here. They they went to the front to preach and teach. I just I love that stuff. Uh, Oswald Chambers was born in the United Kingdom in 1874, and he would die in Cairo, Egypt, like Joel was telling us in 1917. Troy Oswald Chambers uh, has an interesting backstory. He got saved when he was 15 years old. He was raised in a, a, a pretty godly household. His parents, Hannah and Clarence Chambers, and this is the fact of the podcast right here, were both led to the Lord and baptized by Charles Spurgeon. So it all kind of they're all they're all linked. They're all connected somehow. But yeah, I think it's neat that 
Oswald Chambers' parents were led to the Lord and baptized by Charles Spurgeon. Uh, not only were they both saved by the preaching and work of Charles Spurgeon in London, but Clarence was actually one of the first students at Spurgeon's Pastors College. And when they were visiting London and they had taken Oswald, and Oswald's 15 at the time, um, they took him to hear Spurgeon preach. And on the way home, uh, and this was in 1889, Oswald told his father he wanted to be saved. He accepted Christ, he was baptized, and he began attending Bible studies and classes. He also got involved with street evangelism and helping out the local missions. He uh, made, this This made a huge impact on his life. It wasn't, a, I got saved, but you know, it's a slow journey. He immediately threw himself all in. From there, he went to college, and he did very well in college, had very good grades. And while he was very involved in ministry, uh, he's, he's pretty honest about kind of wrestling with his faith throughout this time during college. He talks about feeling distant from God and parts of the Bible that he didn't quite understand, talks about feeling spiritually dry. Um, but he also talks about one day, it kind of it kind of came together and kind of clicked for him. And I don't know if you've had an experience like that. I know I have. There's definitely a point in my life where I feel like the grace of God suddenly made more sense to me. Um, and he is quoted by, by saying essentially that. He says, he felt such freedom and peace when he realized that the work rested in Christ and not himself. And so there's kind of that, that mark in his life where he, he definitely took off from there and, and was all in. It wasn't too long after that he, that he got the chance to hear another uh, Revive Thought speaker, Hudson Taylor, founder of the China Inland Mission Speak. And he was talking about the importance of missions. Oswald uh, decided pretty much right then and there that he wanted to travel and tell people about God, uh, too. And it's another one of these moments, too. We talked about how he met Spurgeon. We talked about Hudson Taylor. It's just this era, particularly, it's crazy how all these people just seem to run into each other and know each other. I just, it, that's a, such an aside thing, but it, it just fascinates me how much influence these people have. You know, we see the influence Hudson Taylor has on China, but think of the influence that Hudson Taylor, by talking at this one the little speech had on Oswald Chambers that had on a whole bunch of other people. It's just cool how God works these people together. Anyway, uh, not too long after that, he becomes a pretty well-known speaker. Um, in 1911, he opens a Bible training college. He really believed he needed to open one and help people. Uh, in his mind, most people were spiritually lethargic because they just weren't being mentally challenged by their faith. And he thought, if I could get their brains working, I'll get them moving and growing spiritually. Uh, during this time, he would start visiting and preaching other countries. He spent a lot of time going to Japan and uh, the United States of America, and it was on a trip to the United States of America, he met his wife, Gertrude, um, who would actually eventually give him his only daughter to uh, Kathleen. But then World War I comes around, and we'll get into a little bit more about his involvement in World War I after this quick break. So World War One, this this huge war, unlike anything the world had ever seen, happens when Oswald is 41 years old, and he could have easily skipped it, but he signed up and wanted to go out as a chaplain for the YMCA, so they sent him to Egypt to preach to the troops there, and he preached to soldiers on the ground, he preached to soldiers from New Zealand and Australia, and Cairo, you know, around that 1917 area is not a great place to be. It's not a comfortable place to be. The soldiers that he's preaching to end up losing terribly at the Battle of Gallipoli. And, you know, it's interesting to think about, but some of the men that he's preaching to, I mean, they never made it back home. He's on the front line in a war zone because you know, he wants to give people a last chance to hear the gospel. 
Due to a bad surgery, he ends up dying in 1917. A ruptured appendix and a botched operation is what ends his life. And we don't know for certain, but I do think to myself, he was in Egypt right on the front lines. One has to ask himself, had he been back in the United Kingdom with maybe better doctors and tools, he might have survived. No one, you know, it's, it's not known. But there he was in Egypt, not really known, not very famous, um, but the people and the soldiers he, were pre he was preaching to, and they were dying in battle, and this Bible school that he started, it closed when he went to Egypt. And so really, I mean, other than the personal relationships and people he had known, this would have been the end of his story. He would have been like so many other pastors and preachers throughout history who did these great works for God. They put their heart in there, but we don't know them and we, we never hear about them. Except this is also where God kind of does this amazing thing and uses this really unique gift that we have to talk about. His wife, Gertrude, um, had been a secretary. And when he went to the United States of America back in around 1908, they were taking a trip there and someone asked that he could keep an eye on her because she, she tended to get sick. Um, so he's spending time with her. They're liking each other. They start writing letters to one another. And one is, you know, this student Oswald, he's excelling at school. He's probably a pretty great letter writer. And this other is this woman, Gertrude, and she has this unique ability to take amazing, vast notes. Uh, she could write notes down at 150 words a minute. And even today, that's a fast, I mean, if you were a typer and you can write, uh, you know, can type at 100 words a minute, you're considered a very fast typer. Um, in fact, just for no information, no reason whatsoever, the fastest ever typer, typewriter, I don't know what you call it, uh, was done at 216 words per minute. That's just, just for you to know. Now you just know that, uh, like I do. And it was done in 1946. Okay, so she's writing all his sermons and teaching and lectures and stuff down. She's doing this while he's teaching for years in the United Kingdom, for years at the Bible training school, and for years in Egypt. And after he dies, she has all these notes that she's been taking his entire life or that they've known each other and been working together. And she decides this needs to be remembered. Um, she puts them in books and I think over 30 devotionals get written, but the one that we all know and are familiar with or you may have heard, ha have heard of is My Utmost for His Highest. That book, um, even though there were many, but that one, it becomes this very famous devotional, probably the most fa famous one that came out of the 1900s and is still read today. It's never been out of print since. Um, and all of that happened because this amazing preacher who we would have forgotten, who never became famous, never preached, you know, tens of thousands or anything like that, happened to be paired up with this woman who had this really unique but commonplace gift. You know, you compare that to the gift of preaching or teaching or writing books, it actually seems kind of boring to have this gift to be able to write down words, right? But if we didn't have her with him at that time, we would have lost these sermons and these devotionals would have never gotten written and we probably wouldn't know this person's name today. Yeah, I feel like it's like a movie ending. Like that's how the end of a movie would go where the wife is now then telling the story to be remembered for all time. I don't know. I watched too many movies, I guess. But <laughs> the sermon we're looking at today, uh, Oswald calls us to give up ourselves. You know, we talk a lot about in today's society about wanting to stand out, about doing that hustle to get your goals to, you know, be unique and to make a difference in the world. And well, you know, it's good to have goals. Oswald really goes out of his way to remind us that the most effective we can ever be is in the center of God's will and that the best way to be effective in, in the long term, in, in eternity, in the realms that really matter is when we identify with Christ and when we fully surrender ourselves over to him.
by the surgery of providence luke 15:17 but when he came to himself it is difficult to realize that it is god who arranges circumstances for the whole mass of human beings we come to find however that in the providence of god there is as it were a surgical knife for each one of us individually because god wants to get at the things that are wrong and bring us into right relationship to himself. At first, we trust our ignorance and call it innocence. We trust our innocence and call it purity, until God in his mercy surrounds us with providences which act as an alchemy, transmuting things and showing us our real relation to ourselves. To say, oh, I'm sick of myself, is a sure sign that we are not. When we really are sick of ourselves, we will never say so, but will gladly come to the end of ourselves. So long as we say, I'm tired of myself, it is a sign that we are profoundly interested in ourselves. The Sin of Self-Importance, Luke 15, 12 Father, give me the portion of thy substance that falleth to me, and he divided unto them his living. This is the picture of one who has become spiritually independent. The portion of goods from the Father has been received. There has been a real experience of God's grace. But there is the letter I about it, a self-assertive determination to carry things out in my own way. The most powerful type of spiritual delusion is produced in this way. It is based on ignorance of what we should do with the substance the Father has given us. We should devote it absolutely to Him. If we forget this, we are certainly in danger of the sin of self-importance. It begins with the realization that God does do his recreating work through us if we are children of his. Yes, God did use me, you say. God will use anything or anyone. Unless there is abandonment to the Lord Jesus, self-importance will always be inclined to utilize God's blessing for its own ends. No man can abandon to Jesus Christ without an amazing humiliation to his own self-importance. We are all tremendously important until the Holy Ghost takes us in his hand. Then we cease to be important, and God becomes all-important. The Sordidness of Self-Indulgence Luke fifteen thirteen, And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country. And there he wasted his substance with riotous living. The soul that has claimed its portion and becomes spiritually independent may ultimately be degraded into feeding pigs and eating with them. More awful things are said about backsliding than about any other sin. If we do not maintain a walk in accordance with the perception given, we shall fall as degradingly low as we were high before. The depth of degradation is measured by the height of attainment. Don't deal with it on the surface and say, I'm not built that way. I have none of those sordid tastes. The nature of any dominating lust is that it keeps us from arriving at a knowledge of ourselves. For instance, a covetous man will believe he is very generous. Thank God for the surgery of providence by means of which he deals with these absurdities. The way God brings us to know ourselves is by the kind of people he brings round us. What we see to condemn in others is either the discernment of the Holy Ghost or the reflection of what we are capable of ourselves. We always notice how obtuse other people are before we notice how obtuse we ourselves are. If we see meanness in others, it is because we ourselves are mean. 
If we are inclined to be contemptuous over fraud in others, it is because we are frauds ourselves. We have to see ourselves as God sees us. And when we do, it keeps us in the right place. My God, was I ever like that to thee? So opined and conceited, so set on my own ends, so blind to myself. These things, which are most unpalatable, are true, nevertheless. Beware of any belief which makes you self-indulgent. It comes from the pit, however beautiful it sounds. It is an indication of a wrong relationship that does not spring from the attitude of abandon, and we become perverse and remain ignorant of the fact that we need to be guarded by God. The Sorrow of Self-Introspection Luke fifteen seventeen. But when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish here with hunger? There is no pain on earth to equal the pain of wounded self-love. Unrequited love is bad enough, but wounded self-love is the cruelest thing in human life because it shifts the whole foundation of the life. The prodigal son had his self-love wounded. He was full of shame and indignation because he had sunk to such a level. There was remorse, but no repentance yet, no thought of his father. I will arise and go to my father, and he will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in thy sight I am no longer worthy to be called thy son. And he arose and came to his father. That is repentance. The surgery of providence had done its work. He was no longer deluded about himself. A repentant soul is never allowed to remain long without being gripped by the love of God. Man, what is this? And why art thou despairing? God shall forgive thee all but thy despair. Let the surgery of providence drive you straight to God. The Spirit of God works from the standpoint of God from a standpoint inconceivable to the natural man. The words miraculous and supernatural are disliked today. Through the influence of modern psychology on spiritual work, the attempt to define on psychological lines, materialistically psychological lines, how God works in a soul. The surgery of the providence of God will break up all ignorance of ourselves. It is impossible for a human being to guard his unconscious personality. Only God can do it. If we have not abandoned to Jesus Christ, we are likely to be trapped on every hand by our complete ignorance of ourselves, and panic will result. Panic leads us away from the control of God and leaves us not only beyond our own control, but possibly under the control of other forces. The one safeguard is abandonment to the Lord Jesus. Receive his spirit and obey him. By the surprises of personality. John 17, 22. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. My right to my individual self. Matthew 16, 24. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The natural is not sinful, neither is it spiritual. The ruling disposition of my personality makes it either sinful or spiritual. The natural life and individuality are practically one and the same. Individuality is the characteristic of a child. It is the natural husk of a personality 
and it is there by God's creation to preserve the personal life. But if individuality does not become transfigured by the grace of God, it becomes objectionable, egotistical, and conceited, interested only in its own independence. When natural independence merges into independence of God, it becomes sin. And sin isolates and destroys and ultimately damns the personal life. Jesus Christ lays his axe at the root of independence. There is nothing dearer to the heart of the natural man than independence. Wherever there is authority, I go against it in order to show I am an independent. I insist on my right to myself, my right to an independent opinion. That spirit does not fit in with Jesus Christ at all. Independence and pride are esteemed by the natural man, but Jesus says, That which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. The statements of Jesus about the disciples produce embarrassment in the natural man. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. John 6.66 If we are to be disciples of Jesus Christ, our independent right to our individual self must go and go altogether. We evade the claims of Jesus by saying they have a mystical meaning, and we try to get away from their intensely practical, rugged meaning. If any man would come after me, said Jesus, let him deny himself, deny his right to his individual self. Our Lord always mentions the most intimate relationships in connection with discipleship, relationships which make our human life what it is by the creation of God. And he implies that any one of these relationships may enter into competition in some form or other with his call. And if they do, he says it must be prompt obedience to himself. It is not only sin that awakens resentment in the natural heart of a man to the claim of Jesus Christ, but individuality, which has been abused by the disposition of sin. The Holy Spirit continually urges us to sign away our right to our individual self to Jesus. Learn of me, says Jesus, for I am meek and lowly in heart. How few of us do learn of him. We cling to our individuality like a drowning man to a straw. Of course God will recognize my individual peculiarisms and prejudices. Jesus Christ pays attention to one thing only. If you would be my disciple, deny your right to yourself. Individual peculiarisms belong to the husk of the personality that are things that produce all of the difficulty. When the disposition of sin has been dealt with by identification with the death of Jesus, the natural individual life still remains. Individuality must be transfigured by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And that means a sword going through the natural. Over and over again, the Holy Spirit brings us to the place which in evangelical language is called full surrender. Remember what full surrender is. It is not giving up this thing and that, but the deliberate giving up of my right to my individual self. As long as we are slaves to our ideas of individuality, we distort the presentation of our Lord's teaching about discipleship. The Recognition of My Personal Self Matthew 10, 39 He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. 
We have to recognize that our personal life is meant for Jesus Christ. The modern jargon is for self-realization. I must save my life. Jesus Christ says, Whosoever shall lose his life for my sake shall find it. The cross is the deliberate recognition of what our personal self is for, to be given to Jesus. And we take up that cross daily and prove we are no longer our own. Whenever the call is given for abandon to Jesus Christ, people say it is an offense and out of taste. The counterfeit of abandon is that misleading phrase, Christian service. I will spend myself for God. I will do anything and everything but the one thing he asks me to do. Give up my right to myself to him. But surely Christian service is a right thing. Immediately, we begin to say that we are off the track. It is the right person, the Lord Jesus Christ, not the right thing. Don't stop short of the Lord himself, for my sake, as Jesus put it. The great dominating recognition is that my personal self belongs to Jesus. When I receive the Holy Spirit, I receive not a possible oneness with Jesus Christ, but a real intense oneness with him. The point is, will I surrender my individual life entirely to him? It will mean giving up not only bad things, but things which are right and good. If you have to calculate what you are willing to give up for Jesus Christ, never say that you love him. Jesus Christ asks us to give up the best we have to him, our right to ourselves. There is only this one crisis, and in the majority of lives it has never been reached. We are brought up to it again and again, and every time we go back. Self-realization must be renounced in order that Jesus Christ may realize himself in us. The Realization of Christian Self Matthew 3.11 I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. This is neither the individual self nor the personal self, but the Christian self, that they may be one, even as we are one. How is this oneness to come about? By the baptism of the Holy Ghost and in no other way. When the Spirit of Jesus comes into me, he comes into my personal spirit and makes me incandescent with God. The individual peculiarisms are seen no longer, but only the manifestation of the oneness with God. One person can merge with another person without losing his identity, but an individual remains definitively segregated from every other individual. When the disciples were baptized by the Holy Ghost, they became witnesses to Jesus. When a man falls in love, his personality emerges and he enters into relationship with another personality. Love is not anything for me at all. Love is the deliberate giving of myself right out to another the sovereign preference of my person for another person. The idea that I must have this person for myself is not love, but lust. Lust counterfeits love in the same way that individuality counterfeits personality. The realization of the Christian self means that Jesus Christ is manifested in my natural life, not Christian sentiment, but Christian self. Individuality is not lost. It is transfigured by identification with the person of Jesus. 
Is there any use in beating about the bush? We call ourselves Christians. What does our Christianity amount to practically? Has it made any difference to my natural individual life? It cannot unless I deliberately give up my right to myself to Jesus. And as his disciple begin to work out the personal salvation he has worked in. Independence must be blasted right out of a saint. God's providence seems to pay no attention whatever to our individual ideas because he is after only one thing, that they may be one even as we are one. It may look like a thorough breaking up of the life, but it will end in a manifestation of the Christian self in oneness with God. Sanctification is the work of Christ in me, the sign that I am no longer independent, but completely dependent upon Him. Sin, in its essential working, is independence from God. Personal dependence upon God is the attitude of the Holy Ghost in my soul. As I was listening to this episode, one of the things that stuck out to me is that a lot of the phrases he uses, a lot of the terms he uses, almost sounds a lot like, kind of like modern day psychology. I hear a lot of people talking about, you know, you got to learn to love yourself and you got to be independent and, and, you know, only then can you find true happiness. And I always find it neat when, when I see this, but it, there's, I mean, there's nothing new under the sun. What we think are, are, are new revelations or new discoveries or new ways of looking at things now like people have thought about that in the past this sermon was preached over a hundred years ago and yet you know it sounds some of that terminology sounds very similar to to what people how they kind of talk in today's day and age and i don't you know want to pick a fight with anyone but i for one really agree and, and like chambers analysis that that fulfillment and happiness comes when you put your dependence on god he has a line in there where he says the devil encourages independence or, or something like that. It's not an exact quote, but something to that effect, the devil encourages independence. And that stuck out to me. I think it's a, a you know, kind of a lie of our culture that we need to be focused on ourselves so much. And, and again, I, I understand there's a balance to it to making sure that you're mentally healthy. But the, I mean, the God of the Bible, Jesus in the Bible is, is nothing but selfless, constantly focused on other people, constantly serving other people. And I know, I mean, for one in my life, I find that fulfillment in being identified with God and being surrendered to God. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Chase Replogly. Chase is the host of the Pastor Writer Podcast. And Troy and I were recently on a uh, episode of his podcast. We had a lot of fun. Link for that is in the description down below, along with links to our website, where you can view the transcript for this episode and all of our episodes. Thank you for listening to this episode of Revive Thoughts. And we just wanted to say, too, uh, over the Christmas break, especially, I, you know, the past couple of weeks, we've received a ton of encouraging feedback through emails, Instagram messages, Facebook Messenger, Facebook posts, reviews, iTunes reviews, I just t- uh, even tweets. We we cannot believe how much positive feedback, encouragement, and, and it it really feels like it was all right at the right time. We were, we were telling each other, you know, it just seems like God just showed us through you guys, the listeners, um, how important this show is. And we, we just want to 
tell everyone thank you so much that feedback means a lot and when you guys leave reviews not only does it help the show grow when it helps us in the algorithms it's also really encouraging to Joel and myself to just see that we're not the only ones who love these old sermons but that there are lots of others out there who are um, growing closer to God and growing in their works their walks with God because of this so thank you so much please continue to send those and we love getting them and we love talking with you guys this is Troy and Joel and this is Revive Thoughts is brought to you by the Worth Your Time podcast, where you'll hear from Christian female entrepreneurs, politicians, ministry leaders, authors, athletes, CEOs, and more. I'm Erica Anderson, mom of two, writer, and host and creator of Worth Your Time. I created this podcast because I wanted to hear from more women like me who were interested in the intersection of faith, politics, and culture. How do we navigate the choppy waters of partisan politics? How do we engage with culture honorably as Christian professionals? I know you don't have a lot of time, and that's why I make every second worth it on this show. You'll hear from women that aren't on every other Christian podcast, and we get really real, because I don't know how to function any other way. Episodes drop every other Tuesday. Hope to see you there.